Hello and welcome to another installment of The Scrum. It's the podcast we do here at WGBH about politics and political media in Boston and beyond. And I'm uh, sitting here right now with my colleague Peter Kadzis in the elegantly understated lobby of the Radisson uh, Manchester. Peter, what do you think of the scene here? Uh, You have various media luminaries coming through. Cokie Roberts was just... Uh, chatting with Jim Browdy, Chris Matthews, Robbie Mook, the Clinton campaign manager. Do you, do you get excited by this stuff? Well, it, it was a lot of fun watching Chris Matthews standing outside waiting to be recognized. <laughs> that's going to be my enduring, that's my enduring takeaway from this little trip to Manchester. And that great coffee shop we went to. Yeah, that coffee shop is very nice. Actually, there's a lot of cool, funky um, commercial businesses in Manchester. Cooler, I would say, than in Boston, where the uh, commercial real estate prices are insanely high. So, But enough about where we're sitting, because we are also joined by uh, the great McKay Coppins, senior writer at BuzzFeed News and author of The Wilderness, Deep Inside the Republican Party's Combative, Contentious, Chaotic Quest, to take back the White House. McKay, thanks for coming in. Thanks for getting all the way through that subtitle. I, was, I appreciate that. It's, it, it takes a rare host to really nail it. And well, I did have to write it down, so I can't take too much credit. I got to ask you, when you set out to write this book, um, what was your sense of how the Republican primary fight would unfold? And to what extent does what we've seen happen match what you expected, either before you started reporting or after you finished writing? Well, I obviously predicted exactly what would happen. I knew Donald Trump would dominate the race. No, I, I mean, there's no way. I, I, I covered the Romney campaign in 2012, and I was on, you know, in Boston on the night of the election when he was losing and Republicans all over the country were losing. And I remember at one point a kind of like half-drunk aide kind of stumbled over. This was after they were all depressed and knew they were losing, just waiting for the concession speech. Stumbled over and was like, you know, I don't know if Republicans will ever be able to win the White House again. Uh, and that kind of was sparked the idea of, of doing this. And so I ended up, you know, it, it's hard. it was hard because you don't know who's going to run in four years, right? And so it wasn't supposed to be just a campaign book, but it was kind of supposed to be, you know, a book about the, the rising stars in the party, the Republican Party, and kind of the battle over the soul of the party, right? And, uh, and that's why I opened the book on election night 2012, going from, you know, Donald Trump uh, to Paul Ryan to... Uh, Rand Paul to Jeb Bush to Marco Rubio, kind of all of them uh, processing the the Republican Party's dismal, uh, you know, defeat, and then kind of trying to figure out uh, where we go from here. And so, and and then I follow them over the next few years. But I mean, I I, I had no idea. Like I, I'm on the record uh, very publicly uh, not believing that Donald Trump was ever going to run for president. So well, I, well, I can't claim be, to be very prophetic in this regard. So so we might as well tackle that since you brought it up. It was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I didn't want to make it, no, you know, no, didn't want to do it so early. Let's make this as antagonistic as possible. I want to, <laughs> come on, bring, bring, so, the, bring the question. So you infamously wrote, I shouldn't say infamously, because it was a great read, but you wrote this piece titled 36 Hours on the Fake Campaign Trail with Donald Trump, which seems to me to have, you know, back in the day, you were in the avant-garde of reporters who were having abuse heaped on them by Donald <laughs> Trump. I mean, you may have been... You know, there, I suppose there were probably others before you, but you're sort of the first high-profile case I can think of in which Trump went after a member of the media really aggressively. Just uh, 
what was the fallout after you wrote that yeah. piece? I think the premise is, is you know, made explicit in the title, but <laughs> what happened with Donald Trump and his surrogates after that was published? Right. Well, so I, I, the, the piece at BuzzFeed was, uh, you know, only written on accident because I was supposed to, he was actually up here doing the politics and eggs forum uh, in, in New Hampshire. And, and it was like, uh, the, this was the, the like seventh time or something he had flirted with a presidential run. So the piece, I was supposed to interview him on the way back to New York on his, on his private plane uh, through a series of fluke accidents and a blizzard. I ended up at his house in Mar-a-Lago, his, uh, his compound in, in Palm Beach, uh, and spent a couple days there. Uh, and then the, I wrote this piece that I think Trump was especially hurt because he thought that he had been so gracious and hospitable and why didn't I return the favor with like this glowing profile. Um, and then what I write about in the book is the actual fallout from that piece, which I had never fully kind of documented. But I mean, he, you know, he did the thing that Donald Trump does now all the time, which is he, he had a, a flame war with me on Twitter, you know, called me a scumbag, said my wife was ugly. Uh, you know, I didn't remember that he'd, I, I, see, I remembered him talking about your appearance, but didn't well, remember so that he brought your done, wife uh, in there. During the, during the, when I was there and I wrote this in the story, at one point I was recording the interview with my, my iPhone, and at one point I was checking it uh, to make sure the recording was working, and he saw a picture of my wife that was on there. And and he said, oh, that's a good-looking woman. And so I put that in the piece. And then once the piece came out and he didn't like it, he tweeted uh, that I was a slob who didn't understand sarcasm when he was talking about my wife. Uh, luckily, my, my wife, when I, when I read the thing to my wife, she said, well, luckily, my, uh, my self-esteem is not all derived from Donald Trump's uh, <laughs> views of me. But anyway, I mean, he did that. So that's like the normal thing he does. But he also, you know... Uh, one of his like minions circulated a, a letter to all the Republican press secretaries in Washington saying they shouldn't talk to me and that I was a, I believe the quote was partisan flibberty gibbet. Um, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the weird, I mean, and then he got me you know, locked out of like conservative conferences that I was trying to cover and, and various things. The, the most unsettling part, most of it was just fun for a reporter like me, but the most unsettling part was one night, late at night, I uh, was working in my apartment and I got a Gchat message from a conservative opposition researcher who said that he had been recruited to dig into me, like it, I was the kind of target of the project and he was supposed to find skeletons that would finish me, quote unquote. Wow. And he, he had turned it down, but he said he knew there were others being recruited. So that, you know, that's how, that, that's what it's like to, to get into one of these with Donald Trump. <clears throat> you know, that, that just reminds me how much politics has changed. About 38 years ago, I was a young reporter at the Providence Journal, and I had done some investigative pieces that were very critical of uh, then-Governor Gary in Rhode Island. I'm at, having breakfast at the normal place I have breakfast at. The phone rings. The guy behind the counter says, some guy claiming to be the governor's on the phone. <laughs> he had tracked me down. He says... Gads, this is Peter Gads, says, yeah, he says, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to do everything I can to discredit you with the management at the journal, and I just wanted you to know. Now, that's, you know, I came away from that half elated, half terrified, but it was like Joe Garrahy was such a decent, straightforward guy that if he was going to go after you, he had to tell you first before he'd do it. I would have appreciated a heads up from Donald Trump. That doesn't, that, I, I did not get that. So when you said, I don't want to belabor this, but when you said um, that, that most of it was fun as a reporter to experience being yeah. in the limelight this way, 
Do you really mean that? Because as you describe what you went through, I got to say, I'm a, I'm a pretty thin skinned guy. Maybe you're just more secure than I am. But I think that that would kind of gnaw at my gut. Uh, it, it sounds right. kind of traumatic. Uh, no, well, I don't know. I mean, like, definitely at that moment, and, and I, you know, anyone hates when somebody goes after your your spouse. Like, that's you know, you take that stuff personally. But the thing about Trump is that it's like, I, I mean, you, I, I knew before going into it that writing about him is kind of like being a like a bullfighter, a matador, where you're like waving something in front of him and just waiting for him to charge. Um, you know, the, the thing is, he does this now all the time with reporters. I mean, he'll up on the, uh, when he's speaking up at like the podium at his rallies, he'll call out reporters by name. I mean, Katie Turr, the NBC correspondent who uh, covers her covers his campaign. He, I remember there was a campaign where he said, where, where's little Katie? Where's Katie? And, and you know, she's so dishonest. And then everyone in the rally, you know, these like people who are, a lot of them really riled up will turn around and just boo ferociously at these reporters. It's just a weird experience. And, and you know, I, I personally, in, in my case, a lot of it was just like Twitter and online and like you can kind of separate yourself from that. Uh, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not the, it's not like, it's not the f- most fun experience, especially when you're in the room and, and his, his supporters can get pretty angry when, they, when he turns the, the venom toward the press. You know, ever since Goldwater, there's been this, you know, nasty Mussolini-like authoritarian anti-press feeling in, among the Republican Party. But you, should, you really think that what McKay's talking about, I mean, I can't remember anything analogous to this. You know, Eric Fernstrom can be a challenging guy to deal with. But, I, <laughs> but you know, I mean, the, the defining episode there, of course, was Eric Fernstrom dressing down Glenn Johnson, saying to respect the candidate. And that, that to me, seems worlds apart from what McKay's talking about. You think it's analogous? Yeah, it, 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 it's just an escalation. You know, it's what Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, talked about when he uh, talked about defining deviancy down. You know, yesterday's deviancy becomes today's norm. And um, I think it's always been there in the American public, you know, not liking what we do, um, especially recently. And uh, I, I think it's part and parcel, and I expect to see more of it. So how do you cover a campaign season defined by a candidate who has had a huge personal vendetta toward you. What do you do journalistically? Yeah, that's like, it's a tricky thing, right? I mean, the, so for one thing, the campaign won't give me a credential still. I'm on their blacklist. So like in Iowa, I called, I covered him all across Iowa. I had to get to every event two hours early, stand in line with his supporters because he has these huge rallies and, you know, tons of people come to them. He overbooks uh, them, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, oh yeah, way, way overbooks them. And, and so he can always say that, oh, and I have thousands of people outside who couldn't get in. And I am often one of those thousands who could not get in or usually closer to hundreds or dozens. But I I mean, look, like, so those are the logistical challenges. Journalistically, I mean, we've kind of made a decision at BuzzFeed and our editor-in-chief has talked about this, that, like, Donald Trump is not a normal presidential candidate. And you can't cover him like a normal presidential candidate. Ben I mean, Smith, you tr- your editor Smith, sent out an email, right? To yeah, that yeah, effect. he sent out an email saying, and it was funny because that email actually was in reference to the social media accounts specifically, like our Twitter and Facebook accounts, because we have all kinds of rules governing, you know, being partisan and, and trying to be fair to politicians. But in this case, he sent out a thing saying he's running an overtly anti-Muslim campaign. He's saying overtly racist things. He's, you know, uh, and we can call that call that out. And he's he's saying things that are patently untrue, and we can call that out. And I think the thing that got leaked the, in the email that he sent out was that it's okay for us to call him a mendacious racist, <laughs> which which yes. I think which I don't think he necessarily takes back. But I think that. Um, 
but but I think that you know he probably I would probably get edited out if I if I wrote that he was a mendacious racist in my story. But that said, look, I mean, like. I don't actually have a personal grudge against Donald Trump. Like, I, I don't have any personal animus toward him, though I do think he's a, he taps into something very dark in, in American politics, and I think that it's worth covering that, and I, you know, write about that in a fairly blunt way. Well, I mean, the, the thing about Trump is, Trump and to a lesser extent Cruz have just crystallized this um, negativity that's the default setting of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's amazing. Reagan's Republican Party is, is uh, w was so hopeful, so right. positive. Um, perhaps not as much as we think today, but it, 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 it had a vision of something better. These guys, all of them, uh, the, the leaders, in, in, including Rubio, you know, maybe the lightest weight to have risen so high, are just uh, nathering nabobs of negativity, to quote Sparrow Agnew. McKay, I don't want to put you in, in the spot where you feel like you need to agree with Peter because, <laughs> because you're talking with us and he has this take on the Republican sure. field. Does his take jibe with yours? Or do you see voices, if it's not Donald Trump, do you see voices of hope or optimism uh, or just, of, you know, he characterized Rubio as a lightweight. I'd love to get your take well, on I whether mean, Marco Rubio is or isn't. Is a lightweight? I don't know. I mean, well, I'm actually in the middle of writing a, a big story about Marco Rubio that gets at some of the, that that idea. And, and so <laughs> watch BuzzFeed, watch okay. that space. No, but I, I mean, I think that the, you know, the thing that I did as I was writing the book was like interviewing all of these guys and interviewing people around them and just watched hundreds of hours of their speeches. I do think there's some positive. I, I think that Marco Rubio, actually, a lot of his stump speech that he gives is fairly, up, you know, it's meant to be uplifting. It's designed to be optimistic and positive. Uh, and, and Jeb Bush, to a certain extent, also, though he's not as uh, skilled as, a, as an orator, can, can, can kind of end up bumbling around a little bit rhetorically but also you know he tries to make his his uh his speeches and and message optimistic the and problem just is, looks embarrassed as yeah, he's and he doing just looks, it, right? yeah kind of like embarrassed and uncomfortable and, and occasionally miserable uh but i think that the the thing about the republican party and why those candidates have struggled is because i mean look at the look at ted cruz and donald trump just their poll numbers combined who are both of the i mean their campaign messages are apocalyptic it's about the end of america as we know it i think that you write about that and, and those guys have dominated national polls together well over 50 percent or around you know at least over 50 percent of the republican primary voters have said that they like one of those two guys and, and you know it's just, I, I, one of the things throughout the last several years of the Republican Party that all of these candidates have contended with is that what we used to call the Republican establishment, the, you know, loose coalition of party committees and corporate interests and, you know, moderate-minded country club patrician types, right? The, they just don't have the influence anymore. And in a lot of ways, the establishment has kind of imploded in on itself. And in its place, a lot of the influence that you that that is wielded in the party is by this kind of vast counter-establishment, this right-wing counter-establishment that it... What comprises that counter-establishment? I think it's everything from, you know, uh, media outlets like Breitbart that are, you know, overtly combative uh, right-wing uh, websites that actually target, to you know, Republicans that are too moderate or too, uh, what they call them, the surrender caucus, you know. So media outlets like that, um, uh, 
well-funded groups like Tea Party Patriots, Freedom Works, these kind of groups that have million dollar, multi-million dollar war chests that will target uh, Republican office holders who aren't sufficiently conservative. And, and I think if you take together all these groups, they incentivize the kind of stuff that Ted Cruz and Donald Trump are saying. They do not incentivize candidates like Mitt Romney, uh, who, who, by the way, was also contending with that in, in 2012. And, and, and that was one of the reasons you saw him kind of twisting himself all the time, trying to seem more conservative than you know his record would indicate. But I think that that's something they've all contended with and that's why I think so many uh, you know many of the sharpest observers of Republican, Republican politics have come up, come to this point where they're like this is just a not an uplifting you know the party of Reagan is long gone this is not an uplifting positive party because you, you just don't get that much out of trying to be uplifting and positive anymore you know when you add the Bernie Sanders voters to the the, the Trump and Cruz voters as unlikely as it may seem there's just an incredible mass of dissatisfaction mm. with the establishment of both parties. You know, how is that going to play out, do you think, in the final election? I mean, that is, that is a great question, and that's the question that we have going into New Hampshire and the rest of this campaign. I don't know the answer. I mean, if you look at traditional uh, tradition and history, you would, you would assume that if the eventual matchup in the general election will be Hillary Clinton and someone like Marco Rubio, right? Those are the two kind of uh, candidates who have gone the traditional established route. But like, if there ever was an election cycle, we say this every election cycle, that, oh, this is different than all other elections. It, but it, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue that this one is is not different. I mean, if there's ever an election cycle that breaks with history, this might be it. And I mean, maybe we end up with a, a permanent schism in the Republican Party. Maybe we end up with a permanent schism on the left in the Democratic Party. Uh, it, maybe we see the party, the Democratic Party, become much more uh, progressive and even, you know, uh, adopt elements of the, the kind of democratic socialist agenda that Bernie Sanders is champion. I don't know, but I think that it's going to be. I think whatever the answer is, it's going to take a long time and a lot of messy primary fights to figure out. Um, I want to let you go, but before I do, what do you think the odds are that Donald Trump could actually become president of the United States? Do you, is that a, uh, something you're reckoning oh, with? Oh, man. I, I don't know what the odds are. I will say that my wife and I, for the first time a couple weeks ago, like started to discuss that prospect realistically, and we started to look at uh, real estate in Costa Rica. <laughs> we were like, I, I don't think it would be that bad to like blog about it from like Costa Rica. Like Maybe that's that's my, my future. So if, the, if that is on our horizon, Costa Rica is on my horizon, and that there could be worse things. I, think. I, I recommend Malta. Malta, okay. Malta is right. another good place. I'll, That's I'll, where I'll I'm look, going. I'll look into it. All right, maybe we can like <laughs> yeah. move, move into next door to each other. That sounds good. All right, McKay Coppins, thank you a great deal for joining us. This was really, really good stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the insights of McKay Coppins, senior writer with BuzzFeed News and author of The Wilderness Deep Inside the Republican Party's Combative, Contentious, Chaotic Quest to Take Back the White House. Also, Peter Kadzis, thank you for sitting down with me and McKay. Yeah, a lot of fun, and it's a great book. It's, at the moment, the single best book out about the Republican Party. There you have it, folks. Thanks. That'll do it for this installment of The Scrum. As always, we would love to get your feedback, whether it's positive or negative. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org. Is that right, Amanda? Okay, good. Glad I got it right. <laughs> you can also tweet us. He is at Kadzis. I am at Riley Adam and McKay, just in case anyone wants to tweet you. <laughs> at McKay Coffins. There it is. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, all those places. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. Please tune in again next week.